All that remains now is for Moses to die. In chapters 31 and 32 of Deuteronomy, Moses duly warns Israel of her proclivity to disobey God, to break covenant with Him. And he warns Israel of the dire consequences that await the nation because of this inevitable disloyalty to God. Then in chapter 33, Moses blesses each of the tribes of Israel in this parting benediction, which we've just considered. These last poetic words, they're not all easy to understand. The interpretation of each line can be quite confusing and difficult and challenging, but the general idea is very clear. We've been moving this way as we work through numbers and now tie into the last chapters of Deuteronomy This promised land will be received. Israel will enter in. God will keep His word to Abraham. She will possess this land as a gift from God and as punishment against those who then lived there. This is very clear in chapter 33, but all that remains now is for Moses to die. His public ministry of leading Israel has come to an end. And as with all great leaders, the occasion of Moses' death creates an occasion to reflect upon the significance of his life. Steeped in egalitarian philosophy as we are as a culture, we are very quick to celebrate the equal worth and the equal rights of all people, and rightly so. But there is another side to the matter that we also need to consider, and that is that God sovereignly assigns unique leadership responsibility and influence to select few. Such leaders are no more valuable than any other human being on the planet, but they do first of all shoulder far more responsibility than others. Secondly, they suffer the unique trials inherent to their calling. And thirdly, they wield wide-reaching influence upon others during their lifetime that lasts well after their death. So it's, it's wrong to lionize, it is wrong to worship great men and women But I think it's equally wrong to pretend they did not fulfill a unique leadership office, be that for good or for ill, and in the context of Scripture, to recognize that God has chosen certain individuals to lead His people in a unique role. The responsibility, the suffering, the legacy. And here we are, three and a half millennia later, talking about Moses. He was indeed a great prophet of God. Years ago, a fellow seminarian of mine found it needful to hire a rabbi here in Minneapolis to tutor him in Hebrew. And as they were working through some of the Pentateuch and the writings of Moses, this rabbi said one day to my seminarian friend, he said, you Gentiles have no idea how great Moses was. You just don't get it. 
well, I don't want to work here today just to prove him wrong. But let's turn to the text of Scripture and take what it says here. Which is a very unique passage indeed, chapters 34 of Deuteronomy. We find here, first of all, described the death of Moses. God, in various pieces of this narrative, first of all, showing Moses the promised land. In chapter 34, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. Again, to get our bearings here, you find Mount Nebo there on the right of the map and Jericho across the Jordan Valley uh, facing Mount Nebo. The Israelites stationed there in the valley below. They're encamped at Beth Peor the Jordan River Valley near the northeast corner <clears throat> of the Dead Sea. Moses then leaves camp for the last time. He ascends Mount Nebo into Pisgah, which is a prominent point on Mount Nebo. And why does he do this? We remember this perhaps from last week. Chapter 32, verse 48. 32, 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses and told him, go up this mountain to, of the Abarim, that is the range of mountains, Mount Nebo specifically, which is in the land of Moab opposite, that is facing Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession. Remember this, verse 50, last week, and die. The imperative, die there on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kedesh in the wilderness of Zin and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Note that idea again. You did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. Numbers chapter 20. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. And so we come back to chapter 34, and Moses now has left camp for the last time and works his way eastward up to Mount Nebo. Continuing at verse 1, the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan. Let me stop there just for a moment. There's a lot of Dan's as a location. Such a great name, you know, they fought over it, but lots of different places uh, that were named Dan's. We're not sure which one precisely here, but I'm going to lay this out here as, uh, as if I'm on the mountain, since I'm kind of on the mountain here, and I'm Moses, looking out this way at the promised land. So from your perspective, you're facing Moses on Nebo, looking east. And I'm looking west. Forget the real directions outside, but just we'll play it that way as we think about it here. He says, as far as Dan, so he'd be looking off to his right, to the north, and looking in that direction. Verse 2, and all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea. So he's working southward as he is showing Moses the land. As far as the western sea, that is the, uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea. Now the, the hills of Judea are higher 
than Mount Nebo. And so it's not literally that he physically saw with his eyes the Mediterranean Sea. And I don't think there's any need here to say there's some miraculous sight or something like that. It's, so you feel something in here. And some people fill it in this way. Moses saw as far as the Mediterranean Sea, which is impossible physically. But I think better to say it this way. Moses saw the land of Judah, which would stretch to the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know precisely what Moses could see visually, but he's looking from Dan, Naphtali, Galilee as we know up in the northern region, and working his way southward to see the land of Manasseh and Ephraim, and then straight in front of him, Judah, which would stretch to the western sea. So he's seeing the land, and then verse 3, turning southward, the Negev, this distinctive dry region of some somewhat nebulous borders at the southern end of Judah, the Negev, verse 3, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Zoar is looking now far to the south at the end of the Dead Sea and looking straight ahead at Judah that is before him in his, in his sight. And the Lord said, verse 4, the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring He identifies the land very clearly to Moses again from this perspective. Emphasizing God's fidelity to his promises. This is that land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 4, I will give it to your offspring. I I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Moses is restricted from even placing a foot in the promised land. We considered this theme last week, but it repeats itself here as Moses is reminded of this discipline. This is the end of the road for Moses, and so it's proper to formally, solemnly recognize again, you will not enter this land, this discipline from the Lord. And we might wonder, not having considered all of this account from all of the text, how did Moses take this? Was it kind of just this this stoic resignation? Said this before God, I get it, I'm not going in, I can handle this. Is that how he looked at it? Was he just dismissive of the fact that he couldn't enter into the land? Deuteronomy chapter 3, we find this account. He tells Israel, reminding them of the history, I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. (laughs) That's saying something after what's happened in Egypt. You're You're just getting started. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. That good hill country in Lebanon. They don't even know really what to call it. Let me go. Let me see it. The pleading here with the Lord. Moses wanted 
to see the land. Make no mistake. Occupying this land had been Moses' motivation every day of his life for 40 years as he led people that were not easy to lead in a place that was not easy to live. Every day he got up, the promised land is before us. He pleads with God, please, let me go in. It's excruciating to imagine him seeing this glorious land with no ability to enter. But I think we need to consider carefully, this is God's discipline, this is not torture. Moses was facing the reality that we all die with a long, unfinished to-do list. We all die with a list of unmet goals. We all die with broken dreams. All of us. Somebody needs to hear this today. We can tend to think I'm the only one. It's not true. Moses dies with this unfinished business because of the discipline of the Lord. For Moses, like the rest of us, some of the unmet dreams are the result of sinful choices. It reminds us again of Numbers chapter 20. In that moment of severe temptation, Moses chose to glorify himself. And he chose to treat God as common and as unimaginative. And due to his exalted position as the leader of God's people, Moses' sin carried unusually severe consequences. There's the heightened responsibility, the heightened suffering, the heightened influence, but there's also the heightened discipline. This is not how God disciplines all of His people. It's not egalitarian in that sense. But what Moses did in that moment, there was probably no one else in Israel who had the capacity to do that. But he did it. As the leader of the nation, he treated God as common. Like one of the gods who can be circumvented. And the discipline of the Lord falls upon him. Let it sink in. But, we are also to be reminded in this scene that our ultimate goal and final destiny is not found on this fallen planet. This is not the end for Moses. In that sense. We must always hold the achievements and the pleasures of this world with a loose hand. Perhaps Moses viewed the land from his perch on Pisgah with teary eyes. But even if so, he was headed for a land where every tear will be wiped dry. A kingdom in God's presence that far surpasses every inch of this universe. And so whatever he perceived that way, God knew this. It was just a moment of time and he would be in his presence. And the promised land would not be a loss now. That kingdom would immediately overwhelm any desire Moses had for anything in this world. Remember when Samuel was conjured up, what did he say? Why have you disturbed me? 
Samuel didn't come back in that account with Saul and that strange moment before the witch of Endor. He didn't come back and say, wow, am I glad to be back. He just said, why have you disturbed me? Moses lost ultimately nothing. As humanly excruciating as this was. So remember, brothers and sisters, we all die scarred by sin. Every one of us. We all die with a list of failures. We all die with a long to-do list of unfinished business and broken dreams. We're human. We're fallen. That's us. And yet... As God's people, we die with our best days ahead of us, always and forever. It is sanctifying to remember that everything you legitimately want in this life is a faint flicker of the glory that awaits you in God's presence if you know Christ as your Savior. That's what's before us, whatever we failed to do here. And this realization helps keep all of our losses and failures in right perspective as we do so looking with reverence to Moses. The second feature of his death is that he dies and is buried. That is the historical accounting of the actual death takes place here now in verses 5 through 7. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to to the word of the Lord. And he buried him, that is, God buried Moses, in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. How God buried Moses is unknown and not ultimately important. Ironically, not even Moses' corpse is going to be brought into the promised land by the people of Israel, nor is his grave going to become a shrine. Israel was pointed west, and God made sure there was no pull to journey east now or in the future. Verse 7 assures us that Moses' death was discipline. It was not a death of old age or disease. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. The Hebrew, his moisture had not escaped him. It's a beautiful line. He, he was full of vigor and life, yet at this point, he was an older man, I'm certain, weaker than he had been one, at one time, yet with strength and health. Merle puts it this way so well, he did not fail to enter Canaan because he died, he died because he failed to enter Canaan. It was discipline not weakness. Old age did not cut him short of the finish line. He was cut short by God's discipline because of the affair in Numbers 20. But thirdly then, as we consider Moses' death, Israel mourns for her leader in verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. As much grief as Israel had caused Moses in his lifetime, in his death, they recognized him as a great man. Thirty days, nothing happens. 
Life goes on, certainly, but there's no initiative, no movement toward the promised land. 30 days of reflecting upon the greatness of Moses, remembering his life, his ministry. Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, had a tumultuous relationship with Lincoln. Stanton was often harsh and critical of Lincoln's politics, his methods, his habits. He didn't even like him as a person. It spoke volumes to Lincoln's big spirit to have the man near him, and he used him in some pretty amazing ways, even though Stanton virtually despised Lincoln, it seemed, most of the time. But when President Lincoln was shot and dying in a bed across the street from where he was cut down, he finally breathed his last and Stanton was in the room. The report of what he said when Lincoln breathed his last was, now he belongs to the ages. Now he belongs to the ages. There's debate as to whether he said ages or angels, but indeed, whatever he said, it was the truth. He did belong to the ages. This man who despised him in so many ways during life recognized his greatness. And if Lincoln, how much more Moses? Appropriately, Israel stops for 30 days and mourns the loss of a truly great man who belonged to the ages, whom we consider today and the ministry and the part that he had in redemption history. The death of Moses, recorded here in verses 1 through 8. And secondly, the legacy of Moses, we find now in verses 9 through 12. First of all, his able successor, I think, testifies to his legacy, and that's why I believe it is inserted here. Verse 9, and Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses' successor fits under the heading of Moses' legacy because Joshua's leadership bears witness to Moses' greatness. First of all, Moses ordained Joshua. Joshua's authority to lead Israel came from God, but it was brokered by Moses who laid his hands on him in a transfer symbolically of authority. Not only did Moses lead Israel, he had a hand in determining who would continue to lead Israel after his death. Who would take up his mantle. Secondly, Joshua's position bore witness to the fact that what Moses did was worth continuing to do. Some people get confused by this, but they think it's a sign of greatness that no one can succeed me. No one can do what I did. I was a gift to the world at this one point, and now when I'm gone, it's all over. No one else could do it. That's a sign of smallness and weakness. It bore witness to the fact that what Moses did was worth continuing to do, that he placed Joshua in his sandals. And I think there's a principle here also for life and death for us, and that's this. If what you do with your life is worth doing, it's worth passing on to someone in one way or another. 
You may be in a job where that's the case, that you are fulfilling a community function that's necessary and you transfer that job over to someone else someday. It may not be. Your job may not be that type of job, but every one of us somewhere in life finds this responsibility. It may be as parents teaching your children to parent, mostly by example, not by instructing them on how to be a parent when they're eight years old. But you're passing that on to them. This is what it means to be a dad. This is what it means to be a mom. And you're seeking to guide them to carry on the legacy that you've left. Again, mostly just by example, but certainly also by what we teach. For those who are single, teaching others to walk with God as a single teaching others to find your joy and your hope in Him and to be faithful to His calling and to His life. As teachers and ministry leaders, passing on what you know to others, leaving them as a faithful example to follow, passing on. Kind of the 2 Timothy 2.2 idea. Paul passes on the faith to Timothy, who is to teach others, who are then to be trained in order to teach others. Anything that we do that's worth doing is worth passing on to others. And I'd even stop here to encourage those of you who are leading ministries, who are involved in in an area of responsibility. Don't simply fulfill your responsibility. Lead others into it. Teach others how to do it. Show them that way forward so that they can teach others also. God's people form a chain, a links in a chain as we pass on the faith from from one generation to the next. The faith that we believe, the trust that we hold, but also the way to live. How do you live the Christian life? It's something that must be taught by example and word, faithfully and consistently. Don't die to yourself. You should die to yourself in different contexts, but don't die as a self-oriented person. That's what I mean. Pass on the faith. Pass on the truth. And Moses does that in his death by God's direction. We see then secondly, under the area of legacy, what is probably more directly obvious to us, and that is verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's quite a strong endorsement. First, let me make an observation that you've maybe already wondered about, as it's maybe crossed your mind, but the fact that no prophet had arisen to rival Moses' influence indicates that at least chapter 34 was written after Moses' death. There had to be some time for comparison to be made. But also, verse 2, did you catch that? Is he saying, look, there's Naphtali. There's Manasseh, there's Ephraim, there's Judah. Well, Israel's over here. They're on this side of the Jordan. They aren't there yet. Those assignments have not been made yet. And so again, the text had to be, this chapter at least, written sometime after Moses' death. Because these things had not yet been determined. So, I think as we understand the inspiration of the text of Scripture, we can say, and as conservatives do, and I hold very firmly to the idea that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. 
as we say that, many people would deny that from a left position, but as we say that, Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. We also should leave room for the fact that God can direct editors and they can as well record inspired text. The final product is God's Word. How he put that together sometimes might be a little bit more complicated than we think. But more to the point, Moses' unique calling was to speak face to face with God. On Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle, day by day, here again at Pisgah, Moses talked directly with God and God spoke directly with Moses. He spoke face to face. This is what we don't have the privilege of doing. To talk to God face to face. That is to have an actual communication one with the other. Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's face and God said what? No one can see my face and live. So don't, we don't take this literally as looking into the eyes of God so to speak. But it means that he spoke with him intimately in a back and forth communication, in a dialogue. Moses said in Numbers 12, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. So this is God defending Moses. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Notice this. I have prophets. They have a special ministry. But I work uniquely with Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Notice that phrase. Keep it in your mind. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. That trailing effulgence of the glory of God. Moses saw that on the mountain and communicated with God face to face. That is, speaking and interacting together. Well, we have people that claim they're doing that today. You don't have to look long on the internet. and You'll find somebody that had a conversation directly with God and God directly talked to them. This is fairly common in our world. But the reason that God talked to Moses, notice, not how he talked to other prophets. The reason that God spoke to Moses this way, face to face, so to speak, figuratively. The reason is because of Moses' position as God's representative and leader of the chosen nation. This we must take to heart. People today who claim to, that God spoke to them invariably are talking in the context of individualism. God and me got this thing and He talks to me. He interacts with me. It's very individualistic. It's not about even a local church, let alone the church universal. It's not that God is working in redemptive history. He's just talking to me as an individual. When God spoke to Moses, it's not that he just chose Moses and said, I like you more than others. 
I'm going to work in your life differently than I'm working in others because I just choose to do so. It's because of his position in leading the entire nation. In the Bible, it is national interest, which is why God talks to individuals. Or it is a pivotal moment in salvation history. The voice of God speaking to one face to face was unique to Moses. Even in comparison, Numbers 12, to the other prophets. God did reveal His truth in varying ways other than written text. Because what he's talking about, the written text wasn't there yet. But in listening to the voice of God, Moses is in a unique position in salvation history. This is not about an individual. It's about the big picture of God's salvation plan. Keep that in mind when you hear people saying, God talked to me while I was shaving or I was mowing the lawn or somewhere along the line. He spoke these words to me. It's very out of sync with what we find in Scripture. It's salvation, historical, pivotal moments for the nation. There's a lot more to say and a lot more to nuance. But we need to carefully think in biblical terms lest we just cannibalize ideas out of the Bible and turn them into our own things, our own experiences. Beyond this, and again, much nuancing should take place here. We don't have time for it. But notice verse 11. None like him. There was none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So there's not arisen a prophet like him God knows him face to face, signs and wonders, mighty power, great deeds of terror. God worked great wonders for Israel through Moses. God used Moses. and We don't have time to go through all that God had done through this man, but he was the human mediator who triggered ten miraculous judgments upon Egypt. God gave to Moses the miracle working power to turn his staff into a snake and back again. He gave Moses the power to take handfuls of soot to throw them in the air. They cover the land of Egypt with boils. He stretched his staff out over Egypt and Moses summoning the east wind that brought swarms of locusts devastating the land. Moses, this man, stretched out his hand over the Red Sea and God drove back the waters through which an entire nation crossed. On Sinai, Moses' face shone with the glory of God whose trailing effulgence Moses saw with his own eyes. This same Moses led Israel through the wilderness used by God twice to bring water out of a ledge of rock that was sufficient to water the entire nation. This same Moses orchestrated the military victory of over Sihon and Og by lifting up his arms. 
And many more evidences could be listed. Deuteronomy concludes the history of Moses by claiming that with mighty power, Moses performed great deeds of terror, awesome works of God for his kingdom, for his glory, for his people. God makes each of us in his image for his glory. In that sense, we are all one another's equal in the family of God. And yet, let's also acknowledge, as the text directly says, that there are individuals that God raises up in the pages of redemption history who are fitted with unique authority and influence. This is God's plan. This is right. It's good that we acknowledge it, or this text wouldn't be here. Deuteronomy 30 34 would not have been added as inspired text. Moses was one of those prophets. And yet, there is a world of instruction in the fact that Moses dies under God's discipline. His life ends in some sense triumphantly as he sees the land. But it ends in some sense tragically because of his sin. He died in this regard at least, not as a great man, but as a flawed man, a violator of God's law. We rightly revere him. Yet we're reminded that he, like the rest of us, is a man of flesh who dies as a sinner, as sinners must do. And so there's a natural and I think very proper longing not only to revere Moses, but to look with hope that a greater prophet may be found. And this, to some degree, was what Moses' ministry was all about anyway. Jesus spoke of those who revered Moses and rejected him and said, you are missing the importance of Moses' greatness. You're not really getting it. So like that rabbi said to my seminarian friend, you don't get how great Moses was. Jesus said to the rabbis of his day, you don't get what Moses is doing. John 5, how can you believe, that is, in me and in my message of salvation, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Okay, you don't want to receive my rebuke? Moses rebukes you. Yeah, that Moses, the one you revere. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He wrote about me. He wrote pointing to me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I can tell you that didn't make Jesus any friends among the rabbis. I mean, that is a rebuke that strikes very deeply. You're not reading Moses. 
he wrote about me. That could point, for instance, to this statement. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now this could refer to Joshua. But speaking of Joshua as a prophet, we can do that. But there seems to be something else that's happening here. Someone else to whom this is pointing. And I think perhaps Jesus had this in mind. He's pointing ahead to a greater prophet than Moses. And no one would argue that Joshua was a greater prophet than Moses. No one. Jesus said Moses was writing about me. So we're left looking for one that is greater than Joshua and greater than Moses as we see them as men who die and indeed with Moses who is disciplined and ultimately unfaithful. We're meant to look forward and Moses himself wrote to that end and we could work that out for a long time to come but let's suffice it with Suffice it to say, Hebrews 3, 1-6 speaks to this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Remember I said, remember that phrase. Moses was faithful to God. In the big scheme of things, Moses stood for God, served God, accomplished His purpose. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was pointing forward. Moses developing the law, receiving it from God, which spoke of the sacrifice necessary to atone for sin. Speaking of a prophet who would come that is greater than him. He's pointed to Christ, who is faithful over God's house as a son. Not as a prophet pointing forward. Not as a John the Baptist preparing the way, but as the Son of God. And we are His house, the church, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Our hope is in Christ to whom Moses pointed. So Jesus, sinlessly faithful as the Son of God, That is, the one with the authority of God. One who is God. The fulfillment of the law Moses received and the calling that Moses pursued is Christ. As we think to what does this point, pointing to Jesus, but in what sense? It is in the sense that Jesus fulfilled the law that Moses received. In his death and in his resurrection, he fulfilled all that the law pointed to in the sacrifice for sin and the atonement of the sinner. The fulfillment of the serpent on the stake 
to which Israel looked under the plague, looking up and living, Christ became that one on the cross to whom we are to look and live. He fulfilled all to which Moses pointed by dying in the place of sinners, by rising from the dead to give life. This is what Moses was about. It's why God talked to Moses face to face. It's what Moses was doing with all of these mighty acts. Not to draw attention to himself, not to be seen on the pages of Scripture as somebody that we revere and honor and even worship, but as one who is pointing to the only one who deserves our worship, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. In Jesus, the end of the age has come. The man of our salvation has won the redemption of his people. And we are to be reminded not to revere some other prophet We are reminded not to turn to the false prophets of this world and to hear those who claim to speak for God as if salvation rests upon their word, but to look to what God has revealed through people such as Moses pointing us to Christ who is our salvation. So we pause here to revere Moses and to know the work that he did. The 17th century in Europe was a violent and chaotic time. In that environment, a political theory arose claiming that the only way that Europe could overcome anarchy was by the practice of monarchical absolutism. That was a theory of government that said the monarch had to control every aspect of daily life. Absolute obedience to the monarch was the idea. In this environment, Louis XIV of France ruled for 55 years with absolute sovereignty over every aspect of French life. He was called the Sun King. He was the center of the universe, if you were in France. He said famously, I am the state. His magnificent palace of Versailles, an architectural and horticultural wonder of the earth, visited yet to this day hundreds of years later, 4,000 servants were at Versailles. And the ones that dressed Louis XIV had to have noble birth, the credentials of a noble birth to help him put his clothes on because that was below him. Makes us nervous to think of the very idea, but that was the thing then. Somebody else dressed you. In this context, there was a man named Jean-Baptiste Massion. He was a preacher, a chaplain at the court. And Louis had a lot of chaplains that would come in, and most of them he found somewhat entertaining and liked them, and they were always very gifted speakers. But with Massion, it was a bit different Louis XIV said he always makes me, he always touches my conscience. And he didn't really like that. But in 1715, when Louis died, Massion was chosen to deliver the eulogy. How do you eulogize the man considered by many to be the greatest man on earth? 
Masion had a job. Make Louis as great as he was. On the day of Louis' funeral, the magnificent Parisian Cathedral of Notre Dame was lit by a single candle placed next to Louis' ornate coffin. Massillon symbolically extinguished that thin flame and then ascended the stairs of the pulpit. The hushed crowd sat expectantly in the darkened nave. Massillon paused dramatically to pique their attention. What words would the great preacher marshal to exalt the greatness of the greatest of all monarchs? What do you say to honor the Son King? Massillon pierced the silence with the declaration. Only God is great. That's his opening line. Isn't that a great sermon start? Only God is great. Of this, the death of great leaders reminds us. Of this, our death reminds us. Of this, the resurrection of our Savior reminds us. In the end... Only Jesus Christ is great. It will be His name that we exalt for eternity. He is the great prophet, priest, and king. Only Jesus is great. Let's pray. God, help us live our lives in the light of that destiny that is ours in Christ. For those who know not Jesus as Savior, may they embrace Him as great and greatly to be praised as the one who has died to pay the penalty of sin and has risen from the dead to give life to His people. And may we turn our praise with great exultation to You at every occasion and know that You alone are great. We pray for those who know Christ as Savior. May this be our song, our orientation. And again, for any who do not, may they come to recognize who Jesus is and what He has done. Teach us to remember, to number our days, and to know where we're headed. Through Christ we pray. Amen.